I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Waiting for you in the next hour, it's a man whose brain managed to turn a roast beef sandwich condiment choice into a crisis. It's a musician whose latest record title appears to encourage some serious scofflawing. And it's a comedian and author who is perhaps the only child in the world brave enough to say... A three-pack of underwear? Really, Santa? Who the hell do you think you're dealing with here? (laughs) Pull that crap again and I'll stab you. It's... It's... from Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson and music from Willie Porter. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Courtney Hameister. You also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. And Poet Scott Poole is away tonight, but we're grateful that Ian Carmel is joining us. Ian is a very funny stand-up comic. So funny, in fact, that he actually won a competition that proved he was the funniest man in Portland. Now as he tours, that title is expanding to include lots of other cities until he's finally crowned the national evil overlord of all comedy. As Scott does, Ian will be sitting in our audience and paying close attention so he can let us all know what he's learned at the end of the night. And of course, we have music from our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. Welcome to the show. As I mentioned earlier, we'll have Dave Hill on the show later. He's going to give us a peek into his hilarious new book, Tasteful Nudes. We also have Daniel Smith on the show. Daniel comes from a family of anxiety sufferers, and he wrote a memoir about his lifelong struggle with anxiety called Monkey Mind. And not that he wrote it to jump on any sort of bandwagon, but this is definitely a book that many, many people can relate to. Almost 40 million American adults, or about 20% of us, struggle in some way with anxiety, which is double the number of people with depression, the second most common mental disorder. Um, You guys, don't tell depression it came in second, because you know what it'll do to him. Um, And maybe, 
Part of the rise in numbers is simply that it's become more acceptable to admit that you have anxiety. I know that in my parents' generation, uh, they were fans of the shove your feelings down so deep and so forcefully that there's a chance that they will turn to diamonds technique. Uh, They also enjoyed slathering them in gin and pigs in blankets. That was effective. Still is effective, actually. Really, right? But I also just actually do think that we're more anxious than we used to be. And why might that be? Here's an experiment that maybe you can do. Sit on your couch and call someone you care about, someone you enjoy talking to. Just sit there quietly, staring at the window, talking to them. Ask them questions, answer whatever questions they have. It's going to feel strange and old-fashioned, but just push through that because it's actually kind of a pleasant experience. Now, continue your conversation, but also open up your laptop and start writing that email that you forgot to respond to at work. Has that pleasant, calm, collegial feeling shifted to a soft, mildly unpleasant buzzing in your chest? That's just a little bit of stress. And the next time you see your friend that you're talking to, you're not going to ask her how her Uncle Reuben is doing after his kidney transplant, because what you heard was that she was having a Reuben and kidney pie for dinner, which you found sort of excessive, but thankfully didn't have time to ask her about. So... We're all pretty proud these days about how many things that our brains can do at once, but we're actually wrong about that. Our brains can perform one cognitive function at a time, just one. Scientists have actually mapped the brain while multitasking, and according to a July Lifehacker article, multitasking splits the brain into various spotlight areas where each task is stored, and the brain just frantically switches back and forth between these areas as you shift whatever focus you may have left. And you actually, it sounds like all that running back and forth is just keeping your brain in shape, but the opposite is true, unfortunately. Blogger Eric Barker posted this scary statistic from David Rock's book, Your Brain at Work. A study at the University of London found that constant emailing and text messaging reduces mental capacity by an average of 10 points on an IQ test. It was five points for women and 15 points for men. (laughs) No comment. (laughs) This effect is similar to missing a night's sleep. For men, it's around three times more than the effect of smoking cannabis. So do you remember the time that you got stoned in college and you thought that a barking dog was the cop so you jumped out of the window into a kiddie pool and you broke both your ankles? Even that wasn't as stoned as your multitasking brain. And personally, I'm trying to get my brain to put down the multitasking bong because I have noticed feeling a little bit anxious for the past 40 years or so, give or take. Um, And I think it might help. And when I imagine thinking of just one thing at once, it does feel a little bit old school, like going from a mental iPod to just one turntable, one record, and I'm sitting on the floor, reading along with the lyrics, and dreaming, which is the kind of multitasking I think anyone can get behind. Thanks. If you purchase our next guest's latest record, How to Rob a Bank, hoping for a list of instructions, you are going to be sorely disappointed about your financial future, but your ears will be very happy. 
Willie Porter is a singer-songwriter from Mecon, Wisconsin, who shared the stage with artists like Jeff Beck and Tori Amos. He's released seven solo records and a one-time collaboration with the Carpe Diem string quartet called The Mealies, live at BOMA. Please welcome Willie Porter to Livewire. Let's do a song about guilt-free living. Some say I need a driver, a Nixon mask and gun. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, it's not how you get a bank job done. You can't walk in there brazen with a newsy like Patty Hearst. I'm gonna secure myself a seat on the board of directors first. Oh, that's how you rob a bank. I'll get some decent suits. And a bogus business plan Become well-versed in the etiquette of Wall Street Disneyland I hit the country clubs Eating peanuts and drinking scotch I'll talk the recent trends And fart into a velvet couch Oh, that's how you rob a bank Can you do that? Yeah, that's how you rob a bank Get a foundation to give me thanks And give my congressman a wank Apologize for all I drank When I pulled those goldfish from the tank And gave those debutantes a spank Oh, that's how you rock That I just can't survive After giving loans to folks for homes They can't afford to buy And building useless cars That nobody wants to drive Then I'll threaten massive layoffs Just like blackmail in disguise Oh, that's how you rob a bank Yeah, that's how you rob a bank Yeah, that's how Judge me, they'll accept the gifts I send Even though it's not my money That doesn't mean I should not spend As the dough piles up like snow in Switzerland I'll smile when the feds come take me in And with an army of lawyers I'll soon outflank And spin the tale of how my ship sank And get my bonus and give my thanks And spend six measly months in Shawshank You know what's coming Oh, that's how you rob a bank. Can you sing that? Oh, that's how you rob a bank. Sing like your rich uncle. That's how Like your grandma. That's how you rob a bank. Like your little kid. It's a cross-collateralization of greed that brought us all this stuff we really don't need and made it so hard for us to feed people who are just the same as you and me, 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 me. Can you do that part too? Me, 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 me. See how easy it is to get hung up on your stuff. I say 
truth in London is a two-way street and Wall Street put the fire to my feet and the SEC never took a pig. Blame it all on unchecked greed in a time of war. Yeah, I'll blame it all on unchecked greed. She's a tireless whore. Yeah, that's how you rob. Oh, that's how you rob. That's how you rob a bank. Some say I need a driver, a Nixon mask and gun. But obviously, brothers and sisters, that's not how you get a bank job done. Livewire, and if you just tuned in, that's unfortunate because you just missed my electro trance dance mix of Captain and Tennille's Muskrat Love. <laughs> but there's still more to come. Stay tuned for Monkey Mind author Daniel Smith, comedian and author of Tasteful Nudes Dave Hill, the cast of Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, more from Willie Porter and comedian Ian Carmel. We'll be right back. Daniel Smith has had the dubious yet quite impressive talent of being able to muster anxiety about almost any situation. He is a writer whose work has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times Magazine, and Slate, and he had read a lot of clinical books about anxiety disorders, but he'd never really read a memoir that really delved into what it was like to live with anxiety, so he remedied that. In his book, Monkey Mind, he chronicles a lifetime struggling with anxiety about everything from a Holocaust memorial to his first sexual encounter to great effect. Please welcome Daniel Smith to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. I wondered if just right off the bat, if you could explain what monkey mind means. Monkey mind is a Buddhist term for the mind that won't stop moving, like monkeys that swing from a vine and start screeching and throwing their feces. My mind throws feces. <laughs> it's a Buddhist term, so I, 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 I came across it in my, in my travels and my attempts to sit, sit still. Uh, my unsuccessful attempts to sit still, and thought that it was just perfectly evocative of the anxious mind, and I thought I'd, uh, I'd steal it, because the Buddhists, they don't care if you steal things from them. 
they don't really, really care about possessions. Such, they're, yeah, they're just, yeah, they don't really care. They just take these That is terms. an opportunity that I never considered. Yeah, well, you should, you should go through all the Buddhist terminology and see what you can steal. They'll I, give it right away. Yeah, absolutely. And you wrote an article for the, for the New York Times where uh, you, you, you said this, Buddhist was made for the anxious like Chris, uh, sorry, Buddhism was made for the anxious like Christianity was made for the downtrodden or AA for the addicted. Can you explain what that meant? Well, I mean, I don't know if this is true in Vietnam or Thailand, but if you've ever gone to a Zen center on the East Coast or specifically in Brooklyn where I live, there was some neurotic people in there. I mean, they've gone there for the same reason that people become therapists. The apology is to everyone, anyone who's a therapist out there. Yeah. Because they're really familiar with neurosis and misery, mm-hmm. and they want to feel better so badly. And, uh, and so they go and they become Buddhists to feel better, but they're still, you can still tell. You look them in the eye, you look them in the eye and they're still, still, still a little haunted. It's yeah. still under there. Maybe yeah. it's just me, I don't know. <laughs> well, you have, you've grown up with anxiety from, when you were, from a very young age. Yes. Um, when was the point that you realized, I'm, this isn't just me being nervous, there's something amiss? This well, is... yeah. Well, this is, um, the book starts this way, with the loss of my virginity, in a way that shouldn't have made me terribly anxious, because I was 16 and I lost my virginity to, my virginity to two women in their 20s, uh, lesbian women, uh, older women, and this should have been awesome. Right. But, like, on paper, it was the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. But it just, it just consumed me with anxiety. Overnight, I, I, just, I just became someone who could not stop worrying about everything that was going to go wrong. Um, And I came home from that trip. It was on a road trip. I was 16, and I was smoking a lot of pot, and I was going upstate New York to go see fish. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm so much better now than I was at that point. But that's what I was doing, and there's no getting around it. I've confessed it already in print. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I had this wonderful sexual opportunity, and instead of making me happy, it, it made me um, mentally ill. So I got home, and I first thing I did was I told my mother. I have nothing, Again, I'm a much better person now. Yeah. I don't listen to fish. I don't tell my mother about my sex life. I don't do any of that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because you spend a lot of the book talking about what was the origin and that you really tried to figure out for a long time what the origin of your anxiety was. You yeah. had a drowning incident when you were a kid. You near know, drowning near incident. drowning. Sorry. You, <laughs> you are not dead. No. You're not dead currently, which we're all very happy about, I, by the way. Sometimes I wonder. Exactly. But you spent so much time trying to figure out where, where this came from. And yes. you, had a, you, you had this great therapist toward the end of mm-hmm. the book who said something really great to you about that. I thought about the fire. He talked about a fire. You oh, being in yeah. a burning house. Yeah, well, I was expressing to him the, the theory that I had, which, was, um, which I still hold to some extent, which is that it was my mother's fault. And, uh, <laughs> and I kept saying, we need to talk about what happened. We need to talk about my mother and how crazy she is and all these things that they, they did to me, including yeah. the, the, the lovely lesbians and, or near lesbians, um, <laughs> and my mother. And he said, listen, you're in pain, right? At the very moment you're in pain. I said, yes. He goes, and it feels like you're, you're in a house and the house is on fire. I said, that's, ex- that's exactly what it feels like. Thank you so much. And he said, uh, and you're panicking because you need to get out of that house on fire. And I said, yes, that's exactly. Thank you for understanding. He said, well, why... Are you trying to figure out what caused the fire? Shouldn't the first thing you do 
be to put the fire out. Um, and I was like, yeah, that's, that's probably true. So, I mean... <laughs> and, that, and that, from that moment forward, was when I started just a little bit to get less crazy. Well, that's the thing. It really felt like um, it, it, was, it was this therapist and also your wife. Um, I mean, you say in the book that falling in love with your wife helped to quiet your mind by distracting you from yourself. Um, you call her a Did living... Did I say that? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, you call her a living, talking, blue-eyed Xanax tablet, which I thought was very romantic. <laughs> But don't you think We that... all have our fantasies. Exactly. <laughs> but don't you think that there might be some other reasons why love might make someone less anxious? Well, it externalizes. I mean, anxiety is a state of being radically obsessed with the self and your own thoughts and your own worries. And, and, and it usually prevents love because you're so obsessed with yourself that how could you care about someone else, actually even see anybody else? But uh, meeting and, and falling in love with my wife, I should say for the second time, because the first time I was a wreck and she dumped me, uh, on a subway platform in Boston. <laughs> I ask you. But, and yet, nevertheless, we got back together. And, and being able to love her and wanting to love her was a way of kind of getting myself out of my own head enough so that I could um, mitigate the anxiety and, and, and live my life. Yeah. Oh, and and you had this great this great therapist. You had this tiny little revelation, and you say that you're not cured. But really, toward the end of the the, the book, it really it feels like you've you, you've found some peace. And was it really just that conversation, or what else has helped you to do that? It, it wasn't that I found um, peace so much that I that I found the wisdom that is, I think, the only wisdom that will help anxiety, which is that you have to work at it every single day. I mean, this is a therapist who I would come in and scream at him, just be like, help me, like, do something right now. And he'd be like, I don't, you're not ready. And then eventually, like, this went on for months, and I would just scream at him, and finally I was like, I just give up, just tell me, finally, like, let's work. And from that moment forward, he's like, all right, now, I, now son, I shall tell you. what." Mm -hmm. It's a real jerk. And he... Um, <laughs> But he finally, you know, he was, it was like he taught me how to be my own therapist. How to, and he taught me the important lesson, which is that you have to do some... If you're the type of person whose mind works in that way, you're going to have to find the things you need to do every day to, to, to beat back those feelings. And what every do you day. do? What do I do? Not enough. I, um, I, he was a cognitive behavioral therapist, so it, it, the essence of that is mindfulness. Before you experience anxiety, you're... Your mind is, you're talking to yourself. You're saying something to yourself. So what he taught me to do was to identify those thoughts. Um, and I still do that. I still, when I'm starting to freak out, I stop and I say, all right, what have you just told yourself? Um, and I will identify that thought and I will question whether it's true or not. I stopped, uh, he taught me to stop taking my own thoughts as the gospel truth. Um, and, I'll, and I'll do that as a, as a practice as much as I can. And also, I will, I will sit in meditation when I remember to. Um, and, and those two things, if I do them, really, really help. If I do them every day, and sometimes I don't, I should still. Yeah. Is it, is it difficult to sort of distrust your own brain a little bit? You don't know? <laughs> <laughs> it is very, uh, it is, I'm not saying, because I'm looking at you and you look like that, I'm just saying, because most people, I think, understand what that feels like. Yeah, it's the worst, because it's like your, um, your own your own single worst, your single worst enemy is, is lodged inside your skull. 
Um, and that is a that is a terrifying feeling. Yeah. 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 Well, it sounds like you've 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 actually beat it down as much as you possibly can. I uh, drink a great deal. <laughs> and I was smoking opium in the green room before oh, great. I came out here. You know what? But it's, yes, it's I have, out there for I, people to use. You know, <laughs> it is with it was next to the donuts. Yeah. Um, so I just figured I can do it. Yes, I've done what I can do to try to. Yeah. And I think I've gotten far enough. Mm-hmm. Well, and and the book is the book is uh, very enlightening and funny and surprisingly funny. You wouldn't think Thank that you. Uh, that a memoir about about anxiety. The book is Monkey Mine, a memoir of anxiety. The author is Daniel Smith. Thank you so much for Thanks joining so much. us tonight. I appreciate. It. You're listening to Livewire Radio, radio variety for the attention span challenged. And now, back to Pickle Today on the stations of Pennsylvania Public Radio. Welcome back to the final broadcast of Pickle Today, your weekly all-things pickle program for pickle enthusiasts. I'm your host, Ron Chambers. I'm here, as always, with my lovely fiancé, Bev Simon Mathers. Welcome back, everyone. Pickles. (laughs) Pickles. <laughs> <laughs> Pickles, Bev. Pickles. Okay. Now, as we told you at the top of the show, we have a very special guest for you tonight. We've been trying to get this legendary pickle expert on our show for the last four years. But like that last little pickle in the jar, he's proved elusive. <laughs> yep. But we've speared that pickle, and yes. he's with us now. Legendary picklesmith, Daniel Smith. <laughs> Hello, Daniel. Hello. Now, Daniel, our producer Jean-Paul said that you've something you're dying to tell us. We're all ears. All ears, Daniel Smith. Uh, I think there's been some sort of a mistake. I'm, I'm not a pickle expert. <laughs> oh, Daniel Smith. Uh, Stop pulling my pickle. Oh. <laughs> of course you're Daniel Smith. I, I, am, I am, but it's a kind of a common name. I know like ten Daniel Smiths. Oh, so you're not the Daniel Smith who, in 1954, invented the bread and butter pickle. I don't know what you're talking about. 1954, I'm, I'm only 34 years old. Okay, do you oh. know anything about pickles? No. Do you like pickles? I don't know. I, I guess. You guess? <laughs> what do you do for a living? I'm an author. I just wrote a book called Monkey Mind. It's a memoir that deals with my anxiety issues. Oh, God. Is it any wonder why the pickle community has shunned us? We can't even book Daniel Smith. We book a nervous monkey rider. I'm not nervous. I I feel pretty good. Well, bully for you, pickle hater. Oh, Ron, please don't get worked up. Ron, do you hear me? This isn't working for me, Bev. I'm forgetting to breathe. Should I, should I go? Or... Oh, certainly not. You are the final guest, and we're going to finish our final show as planned. Are you? I'm fine to continue. Oh, you hear that, Ron? The fake Daniel Smith will continue. Goody. <clears throat> Up next, we'll test simian psychologist and pickle denier Daniel Smith's non-existent palate with our taste test segment, Stick a Pickle in Your Mouth. Daniel, we are going to stick a pickle in your mouth, and you're going to tell us... Well, just tell us something you like about it. Boy doesn't know if he likes pickles. Ron, please. Okay, here it goes. What do you think? It's okay. Oh, God. Here goes the second. <laughs> <laughs> 
Tastes, uh, tastes like the last one. <laughs> the first was a Nantucket dill, canned by Gunther Sachs, the winner of the 2012 Tuckernuck Pickle Jubilee. Cool. The second was something we were given at a Home Depot when we bought a toilet and some duct tape. That was pretty good also. But if I'm going to lose it... Oh, please don't, sweetie. Think of your legacy. Legacy of what? We have like ten people that listen and two of those are radios that were left on by accident. This program was to be the Algonquin Roundtable of Picklers. I dreamed that Lester Dunbar from Pickle Quarterly would stop by to grouse about how Norwegian canning techniques have replaced Vermont artisan shackling. We drink cucumber martinis and encourage laymen to combine ancient brining and modern sterilization to create stunners like the Charlemagne summer dills or, once in a decade, Maryland sweet Kirby's. I was to be the Dorothy Parker of pickles. Oh, wait, wait, wouldn't I be Dorothy and you would be Robert Benchley in this alcohol? Just, just leave me with my dreams, Bev. All right. Well, let's uh, take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll see if we can teach Daniel how to properly sterilize and seal a fresh batch of Valley Forge gherkins. <laughs> gherkins. My heart! That was Trisha Ferguson, Andrew Harris, and Daniel Smith. You're listening to Livewire Radio, brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, offering a comprehensive line of ergonomic work furniture. Their sit-stand desks help keep your core involved while you power through all those YouTube videos of seal pups. Information from the healthy sitting experts can be found at ergodepot.com. So it's an election year, and we're looking forward to November 6th to see if the current change will stick around or if there will be a change to a new version of change. But sometimes we can learn something from looking back, which is why a stellar cast at Portland Playhouse is putting up a production of the Broadway show Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. It is, strangely enough, a rock musical that examines the rise of populism in the U.S. Andrew Jackson, the founder of the Democratic Party, was the original Washington outsider who fought for the rights of common citizens and eschewed Washington's wealthy elite. In the presidential election of 1824, Jackson won the popular vote and the Electoral College, but not by a majority, so it was up to the House of Representatives, led by Henry Clay, to choose between the candidates. This is where the backroom negotiating happened, and in what would later be called the corrupt bargain, the House would decide that John Quincy Adams was the winner. Take a listen to Corrupt Bargain from Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, and see if you hear familiar themes that played out almost 200 years ago. And now for an explanation of the corrupt bargain that took place in the back halls of Washington while no one was watching. need to find a scheme to keep the power in the hands of the chosen few. John Quincy Adams says, if my dad was president, I should get to be president too. Henry Clay says, you can be president if you make me secretary of state. Alexis de Tocqueville says something in French that none of us can translate. Woo! Do you really want the American people running their own country? 
then Jackson will surely cave. John Calhoun says, You can be president if you don't try to take away my slave. Henry Clay says, You'll get Missouri because I know how to play real politics. James Madison says something precious about this when he was kind of a a total snob. John Calhoun. These two are idiots, but it's Jackson who's the real threat. I'm sure Michel Foucault would have an opinion, but he hasn't been born yet. Jackson is a loser. singing The Corrupt Bargain, with music and lyrics by Michael Friedman. The cast was directed by Brian Weaver. For information on the show, which plays through October and the beginning of November, visit portlandplayhouse.org. Our next guest may be the first author in history to sing naked in the shower in his book trailer. You may have heard Dave Hill on This American Life, talking about his tenacious mother or his lack of managerial skills. You may have watched him on stage hosting the Dave Hill Explosion at Upright Citizens Brigade in L.A. or New York, or listened to his podcast, The Dave Hill Podcasting Incident, or watched him as the gritty recycling officer on Law & Order BFD. Um, or maybe you're a fan of his band, Valley Forge. But the real question is whether you've read his book of essays, Tasteful Nudes, and Other Misguided Attempts at Personal Validation. He's here to give us a little taste of it. Please welcome Dave Hill to Livewire. Hi, it's Courtney here from the future. Just a warning that Dave's story involves a bathroom and things that happen in bathrooms. So if you're the kind of person who's not interested in that sort of thing, you might want to just turn your radio down for about five minutes. There's also a little bit of language and a hint of some other language, but it's just enough to give you the flavor of Dave. He's very flavorful. Hi, how are you? I'm incredible. Thank you. Um, I want to tell you a story. I went to Japan recently. Um, backing up a, a little bit, some of you may, may know this about me, but aside from my unstoppable show business career, um, I'm also one of the greatest rock gods of all time, which is great. For, well, I'm exaggerating like a little bit, but I do play in a rock band with other sort of sad, aging white guys. Um, but this is true. Somehow... Uh, through the magic of the internet, we got asked to tour Japan. I got this email one day saying, like, Dave, would you and your band, you know, come over and tour Japan? I wrote back to this guy. I'm like, yeah, mother rock the fuck out of those <laughs> And it was bleep most of that whole section. Um, and I called up the guys in the band, like, we got on a plane with our guitars and our tightest pants. And then we just, like, flew over Japan to start rocking people. Pretty much 
wherever the people of Japan just needed their asses handed to them by our unstoppable brand of rock and roll ass kicking, we just like, showed up and kicked them in the nuts with, you know, the compositions we had written and, and our, you know, and everyone get babysitters and, and stuff. And um, I don't know how many of you guys have ever been to Japan before, but I'd never been there before. And I can honestly say it's the most awesome and amazing place on earth. It's like super beautiful and futuristic, and everyone's weirdly excited about everything all the time. There's like a higher usage of exclamation points per capita. There's all these incredible things about Japan. But my favorite thing about Japan, hands down, is the toilets. And it's not, it's not like here, thank you, thank you. It's not like here in America where we have one basic kind of toilet. And I'm not complaining, it's a fine toilet. Like, I have a decent enough track record with it or whatever. But in Japan, they have at least four or five different kind of toilets, and I would just use them wherever and whenever possible. And I want to tell you about my favorite toilet that they have over there. And this is a toilet I'd seen the whole time I was there, but I never thought I had, like, the level of privacy or intimacy I needed to really go to town on this thing until we finally got to Tokyo, the last stop of the tour, and I had my own hotel room and had one of these toilets in it. And this toilet, like, to the naked eye, it just looks like a regular toilet, right? But then on the side, there's, like, sort of this, like, command center, sort of, like, on a jet fighter. And in, in Japan, they, they combine the toilet in the bidet, and there's one futuristic thing. I can't even wrap my head around. Our last show's like two hours away. I know this is no time to be, to be getting in any trouble, but I'm like, this is it. This is my time to shine. So the guys are all waiting downstairs. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta do this. And I go into the bathroom. I shut the door behind me. I sit down on the toilet, and I'm pretty far along in the transaction. <laughs> when I look on the command center thing, and there's like this button, and it looks like what looks like, like the letter M, and then these got these like water droplets coming down, and that's like the butt button, right? And then in front of that, there's like a, a volume knob or something. I just like crank it up as high as it'll go, because I'm just like, I'm on my vacation. And... <laughs> so I close my eyes and hit, hit the butt button. This jet stream comes out, and I don't know if there's an electronic eye on this thing that scanned me or what, but somehow I hit the butt button, and it just like found me right where I needed to, to be found. And up until that point in my life, I'd never given much thought, oh, if I get blasted with water, at what temperature and water pressure would I want it to be? But it doesn't matter, because the Japanese have figured that out for you, too. As it turns out, it's exactly 72 degrees. So I, I just start hitting the butt button over and over, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20, and then I have like 45 minutes of this. I'm like drenched in sweat and I'm fading in and out of consciousness and everything. And I look down in the command center again and there's this other button and it's got like the silhouette of a lady like on a, uh, like on a women's restroom. And I'm like, that's like the lady parts button, right? And I'm, I'm like, well, I'm not a lady. I didn't, didn't even know how the electronic eye would assess the situation. Like I didn't, you know, then I didn't, you know, I was just like, when am I gonna start living my life? Just... So I, I hit the lady parts button and it blasts me like right and like I guess it would be like the taint area. And finally after like two hours of this, I'm sort of blinded by this bright light that people talk about. And I'm floating over my own body and one of my bandmates come out, comes in and he's like, come on, we gotta go rock the f 
fuck out of Tokyo. So I pull up my pants and I march down out of there and I rock the fuck out of Tokyo with a cleaner button area than anyone that's ever done that before. Thank you. That was Dave Hill, everybody. Sorry for ruining your show. No, I... I think we can use at least 15 seconds of that. Yeah. The part where you say my name. That is exactly... The only part that matters. That is a good, solid 15 seconds. And then... That's a lot of... Yeah. Um, Well... (laughs) Is there there ever enough, though? It is. It does seem like it's never enough. Um, so I did want to ask you, you've actually been in a couple bands. You were in a band when you were younger, um, yeah. and, and you were signed. Uh, you've been a stand-up comic, and now you're an author. Yes. Um, so which, uh, have you deciphered yet, which one of those is more impressive to the ladies? You know, I go back and forth on this one all the time. No, uh, <laughs> I just tell them I have like a real job. I think that's, no, I don't know. I don't know if they're impressed by any of it. I'm, you know, I'm just, I just take what I can get. I don't know. It's going great. No. <laughs> uh, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Livewire Radio, and we're talking to Dave Hill, the author uh, of Tasteful Nudes. So I wanted to, to talk briefly about this web series that you have coming up. Um, it's called Dave Hill Swing Voter. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, I can. Uh, yeah, it's for official comedy. It's, it's, a, it's a Google YouTube channel mm-hmm. thing and it's about I'm from Ohio which is it's a very it's a very popular swing state that's out there today and um, so they said well, you're from Ohio so they want me to go around and uh, talk to people about you know wh- whom I should vote for even though I between you and me I know who to vote for <laughs> pretending like I don't know so you're gonna you have people who are just trying to convince you to vote one way or the other yeah I think yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah um, <laughs> I'm just getting started with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so as I mentioned, you were in a band when you were younger. Uh, you, signed, you were signed to a label and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty impressive. You've talked a lot about rocking people out. I, well, I can't stop. Right. I'm, but I mean, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's one thing to talk the talk, and it's another thing to rock the rock. Yeah, yeah. Those are two so I'm wondering if, if you might play, play something for us tonight. Uh, I don't think anyone wants to. Yeah. All right, I'll do it. <laughs> Um, this, this song, sort of to tie it all together, is about my, my book. And uh, a lot of people say this is the greatest song of all time. <laughs> I've actually never played this song uh, ever, like publicly. Excellent. So this is, uh, get ready to have your asses handed to you. <laughs> all right. That's, is that enough heat? I would say just a little bit more heat, like just singe, no face melting heat, but just like hair singeing heat, right? That's, that's a little better, right? Okay. Here we go. We'll cut that part where I started. How are we doing on time? Tasteful nudes, it's a book I wrote all by myself. Tasteful nudes, it makes the great Gatsby seem like bull. It's 
not nearly as long as War and Peace. It's got just the right amount of profanity. But get it back to War and Peace for a second if you ask me. That guy Tolstoy needs to get the all for himself. summer vacation but if god forbid you wind up in prison you can read it there too hey you don't have the time but if some guy is bigger than you has to borrow it you should probably let him solo On the subway train You can read it in the pouring rain But I don't recommend it Cause your book can get soaked And this is just my opinion But I think that could really compromise Your reading experience Break it down now Tasteful news Tasteful news Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dave Hill. That was comedian, author, and rocker Dave Hill, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. We'll be right back. care about people and their needs and the earth and things, we're going to answer our burning listener questions. Science, pop culture, religion, your high school poetry. We have read all your high school poetry. Tonight, we have a mix of questions, some from Twitter, some from our Facebook page, some from the audience in the theater, and those questions will be answered honestly and almost accurately by our cast and guests in a segment that we like to call Dear Livewire. Uh, Craig writes, would you mind? (laughs) Craig, that depends. If I'm sitting on the passenger side of a 1986 Ford Escort on Arbor Day, 
and you skid upside on a longboard and ask if you can vajazzle my jean jacket, then no, I don't mind. <laughs> However, <clears throat> if you're sitting next to me on a train and you see that my lips and tongue are hangover white from a long, bibulous night of AMFs, sea breezes, and vodka turkey wraps, and you start furtively humming salt and peppers, push it, then yes, Craig, yes, I mind. Osandra Harris. Trisha Ferguson. Heather asks, how long can you hold it? Eight. It's Trisha Ferguson. Daniel Smith. RPM asks, the flag is blowing in the wind. Is the flag moving or are you? Well, it's the flag moving. But if you're observing the flag, that means that your neurons are moving, which means that you're moving, which if you think about it, and you should, means that anything that happens in the external world influences your internal world which means that anything might result in you becoming completely, profoundly, and irretrievably insane. That was Daniel Smith. Our last answer is from, from Mr. Dave Hill. The question from an anonymous person what is my dog doing at home right now that I do not want to know about? <laughs> I just got this question a little bit ago, and I was thinking about it, and this is what's so great about dogs. Your dog is just home loving you <laughs> and licking his balls. That was Dave Hill. Great questions, great answers on Dear Livewire tonight. Thank you, Faces for Radio Theater, Dave Hill, and Daniel Smith. Dear Livewire is brought to you tonight by New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring their seasonal red ale, Red Hoptober. A beer may not seem like the 1991 espionage blockbuster, but they have a lot in common. It's a deep autumny red like the Russian flag. It's sharp and punchy like a young Alec Baldwin, yet sophisticated like Sean Connery's accent. A complete dossier of this and other non-submarine-themed beers can be found at newbelgium.com. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Willie Porter, accompanied by Carmen Nickerson on vocals. She's tearing the off of a candy bar Stares into the distances I don't think it's too far to go And you're almost out of money But her dreams are made to go and She makes you feel like marmalade Deep down in your soul You get seen It gets 
She brings you orange and mango Still inside the skin She doesn't ring the bell, no She just walks right in She puts you on the carpet She puts you in a chair Till all your broken pieces Are tangled in her hair It gets easier She makes it easier To love All the madness of sight In the arms of the night Under a blanket of Iowa sky Oh, Iowa sky mentioned at the beginning of the show, our house poet Scott Poole is away this week, and he usually sums up the night for us in poetry, but we're still going to hear all we've learned tonight. Writer and comedian Ian Carmel has been watching the show, and he's here to tell us the very, very important information he's gleaned from that hour. Please welcome Ian Carmel. We've all had a good time tonight, but I've come from the suburbs... 
to let the air out of your Peruvian pan flute CD that you get with a $35 donation to National Public Radio. I've compiled a list of grievances from tonight's program, and I'm going to read them aloud right now. First grievance. Courtney closed the cognitive focus story with a heartwarming recollection of laying on the floor, reading liner notes, and listening to a record. This made me nostalgic for something I never experienced, and I'm furious about it. If you're going to relate an anecdote, you should have it reference Limp Biscuit and slowly downloading pictures of Lara Croft from Tomb Raider. Dan Smith has written for New York Times Magazine. I don't like the fact that there is a New York Times Magazine and newspaper. That's two smart-sounding things that I'm not reading. This makes me feel extra stupid, and I'm also furious about that. <laughs> Speaking of Dan Smith, Dan Smith had a threesome and would not give me a high five. <laughs> The word eschew was used during the Andrew Jackson sketch introduction. I wasn't paying attention and said tight," and a man with glasses stared at me. <laughs> the Andrew Jackson sketch featured the song The Corrupt Bargain, which is the name I used to describe when Subway stopped accepting Subway club cards. This is just like when I got busted filling my water glass with horchata at the Mexican food restaurant near my house, and I couldn't call it white water because of the Clinton administration. <laughs> Furthermore, the corrupt bargain made me interested in politics in a way that wasn't blind partisan rage. I'm an American. Somebody needs to tell me who I should hate. Dave Hill's book, Tasteful Nudes, tasted like paper, cardboard, and binding glue. <laughs> Which is fine, but for $15, I mean... <laughs> and finally... New Belgium Brewing Company is one of tonight's sponsors, which is the same company that rejected my slogan, Jean-Claude Van Damme, that's a delicious beer. <laughs> I don't appreciate being in the same building as their product, and you should have thought of that prior to inviting me. Have a good evening. Ian Carmel, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Dave Hill, Daniel Smith, Willie Porter, the cast of Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, and Ian Carmel. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. Tonight's show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. 
Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson, and director Jason Rouse. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse and Ian Carmel. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with House Sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bouch. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Von Drele. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.